Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Frozen 2, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I strive every day to go from zero to hero, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm merely a ravenous duck, carefully portioning out one single kidney bean in a desperate attempt to avoid cannibalism, as we watch through 57 films and counting. Our very own magical giant, within the field of animated academia of course, is Dr Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, what did you make of your intro this week? You are the uh, the magical giant in this podcast. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I would say I'm um, slightly below average height. So to be described as what would that make me like an intellectual giant? That's good. That's a good thing to be. You are. You are. I mean, I am physically <laughs> taller than you. You are drastically taller than me. Actually, wait, no, that's not true. You're a, how much taller than me are you? Um. I'd say just a bit, like not. I wouldn't say drastically. I'm a bit taller than you, but in this field of Disneyversity, in this, in these hallowed halls of learning, you are the academic giant. I am the tiny mouse running around and uh, messing everything up for you. Uh, and are you looking forward to getting into these two? This is our second episode in the package films era. We were into completely uncharted territory for me last week. And these are obviously two more package films, but a very different style. How are you feeling about this week's topic? Yeah, I'm really excited once again. Uh, very different to the the two Latin American flavoured films that we watched last week, but equally interesting. Well, maybe that's not true. But interesting, very interesting. And it's good for me as someone who spends a lot of time talking about and obviously watching the other movies and you know teaching classes on them and things like that. It's good to spend a lot of time thinking about stuff that is often overlooked in that sense so our two films this week are make mine music and fun and fancy free and we mentioned this on previous podcasts just to give people a heads up but if you're heading into this episode cold make mine music is like one of the only disney animated classics that is not on disney plus so if you haven't seen this film if you have a disney plus subscription and you haven't been able to find this you're not going crazy. It's not on there for some reason. You can quite easily get it on DVD. Uh, and I think Sam mentioned that you can watch most of the segments individually on YouTube. So if there are specific bits of the film that sound particularly interesting and you want to check them out, you can probably find them online in other places, just not on Disney Plus for some reason. But that's enough warming up from us. We're all set down, the register is complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, after the toe-tapping rhythms and Latin American explorations of Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros, we're heading further into Disney's package films era, tackling another double whammy of musical montages in 1946's Make Mine Music and 1947's Fun and Fancy Free. 
Okay, so as with Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros, there's no real central plot to either of these movies. They're, they're collections of shorter features. But Sam, as much as you can, what can you tell us about the central ideas behind Make Mine Music and Fun and Fancy Free? What, what are they about or how would you describe them? Well, they're both somewhat different from one another, although they are both package films. They're both collections of, of shorter little episodes. Make Mine Music is very much a review. Make Mine Music is, it's described as a musical fantasy in 10 parts. It's uh, 10 little animated shorts all based around almost kind of different genres of popular music with absolutely no real overarching principle or narrative or frame and device linking them together. Fun and Fancy Free is two half-length films, um, Bongo the Bear and Mickey and the Beanstalk, and they are loosely linked together by a frame and device involving uh, some other classic characters who we'll get onto when we describe it in more detail later. Yeah, some familiar faces popping up this week from from previous instalments and just other bits of the uh, Disney, I don't know, catalogue of characters? <laughs> How would you, the roster, the Disney roster. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. So did you have any idea what these things were beyond the fact that we've talked about broadly how the idea of the package films came about? Did you have any idea what to expect from these two in particular? No, not really. I mean, like with last week when we were talking about Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros, I didn't know anything about those films. But you can tell even from those titles that you're going to get a different flavour of Disney, that there is going to be um, a sort of Latin American style to those films. Whereas Make Mine Music, obviously you know there's going to be something musical but that doesn't really tell you anything (laughs) in terms of disney there's so much stuff uh within the world of disney that is music based so that didn't really tip me off and uh fun and fancy free i didn't know how much it was going to live up to that title uh and we'll find out whether it did later but yeah they're, they're quite peppy but vague titles they don't really tell you much about what to expect going in i think when we get into the central discussion i'm going to end up comparing make mine music to fantasia quite a lot and the title fantasia it has like a grandiosity to it it has something about it that that sort of sparks your imagination and i don't think make my music quite does that in the same way so yeah didn't know what to expect from these uh it's it was all new to me and um i have a lot of feelings about both of them and did you recognize anything as you were watching them did anything pop up that you had seen before even if you weren't aware that it originated in these films honestly not really like i'm fascinated to talk about them because i think there are a couple of standout segments within make my music and as you mentioned fun and fancy free is just sort of basically two shorter films in one but I'm not sure many of the things from those segments, from those individual stories, particularly made its way into the public consciousness in the way that so much of the Disney stuff has. There were moments in the Mickey and the Beanstalk section of Fun and Fancy Free where I was like, this sort of rings a bell. And I, I know I had some stuff on VHS that was like Mickey adventures and things, but I don't think I'd ever seen it in this context. And I was like, maybe I'm just remembering mickey and obviously everyone knows the jack and the beanstalk story and i'm just conflating the two yeah i have to say there was very very little this week that i was like oh yeah this image or this song comes from here or this character even comes through in this story it feels like a total blind spot and i wonder if it feels that way to a lot of other people and a a lot of the listeners as well well i guess we'll talk later on about whether or not it deserves to be a blind spot or whether or not there's things from this that um will wish history had, had salvaged a little bit 
Yeah. I mean, I've got a bunch of questions for you about uh, about how this all fits into the overall timeline. So at this point, the package era of Disney is well underway. Saludos, Amigos, and The Three Caballeros, those films did what they needed to do. We were talking in previous weeks about how, yeah, Disney was in a tight spot. Loads of the animators were either at war or on strike or had been drafted to other places or had left the studio because they were unhappy about pay and, and all this sort of thing. So Disney was having to make these films as a sort of way to make a little bit of money and not spend too much money. At this point, we're still in the middle of this era, but the war is over. These films are, yeah, past 1945. The, the Second World War, which was a big factor, is done. Obviously, there are a lot of repercussions from there. So where did the Disney studio find itself at this point in time? Yeah, so it's, it's 1946. This is the first Disney film released after the war but you know these things do take a long time to produce and that means that a lot of this was made during the war when they were still understaffed as a result of things like the strike and the draft another factor is that they just simply didn't have a lot of money at this point so obviously they were hit by the war and the strike as we've discussed but also we're now like five years on from their last really profitable hit movie which was Dumbo in 1941 so they just don't have the kind of funds in the bank to really put into the big features that were their ambitions at this point. So there are several feature films that have been in development since before the war, things that we're going to watch like um, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, Lady and the Tramp, they're all well underway, but they just don't have the money to fund them. So these are you get the sense that Disney were treading water a bit, putting these things together as, as quickly, as cheaply as possible with what remnants they had left. A lot of this stuff is taken from rejected ideas or abandoned ideas or scrap segments of other films etc so on that front like i was saying to me make my music had a lot of shared dna with something like fantasia and i remember in the fantasia episode you were saying part of the plan with that film was that they were going to add segments to it over time they would keep releasing that film they would keep showing it in in cinemas but with new segments put in and some old segments taken out and switching things up so is that how make my music began it's all these little sort of fragments of animation set to specific pieces of music so yeah, where did that come from? Yes, yeah, some of them are that. Some of them are things that were meant to be in Fantasia or ideas that were floating around from the kind of Fantasia process. And when that film didn't do as well as they'd hoped, the idea to re-release it every so often with new segments and other segments taken out was abandoned. But they still had some of these ideas floating around that they repurposed for this. There's quotes going around from Walt from the time um, saying that he felt restricted by the seven minute long running times and 90 minute long running times that animation was kind of shoehorned into. You can either do features or you can do little shorts. And Walt said that something like Make My Music, and to a lesser extent, I guess, Fun and Fancy Free might fit into this as well, was inspired by a desire to move beyond that because there were a lot of ideas at the studio which didn't fit into one of those two categories. So you get some longer pieces, some 15 minute pieces, some half hour pieces that wouldn't have been releasable in any other context, really. Having said that, I think there's a sense that that is a, an excuse made after the fact to explain why this was made without just going out there and doing interviews saying, oh yeah, we're running out of money, yeah, we are, we are skinned back <laughs> at the studio, this is just the best that we could do under the circumstances. You try to frame it as something of an artistic pursuit. 
I mean, on that front as well, Fun and Fancy Free, it's uh, it's two stories in one, plus there's a bit of a framing narrative with a familiar face. So this seems to have quite a different origin. Was this maybe two stories that could have had potential to be fully-fledged feature films in their own right, but it was just easier and cheaper and financially viable for them at the time to just leave them as they were in these shorter incarnations, stick them together, stick it out? Is, is that how Fun and Fancy Free came about? Yeah, that's exactly right. They were in this pool of ideas for feature films that were being developed around the start of the war with things like uh, Lady and the Tramp and Peter Pan. And while they chose to keep some of those films in development and push them towards becoming feature films, things like Mickey and the Beanstalk and, and Bongo were seen as, well, we can just, yeah, we'll, we'll do these as best we can. We'll do them in half an hour, 45 minutes, put them out as a double feature. And I think a lot of Mickey and the Beanstalk in particular was finished and, it, and they decided to just elide some of the scenes that they were going to animate had they decided to take it to feature length. It's interesting because if things had gone differently, if they were able to realise these projects as fully fledged uh, feature films in their own right, we would have had a mainline Disney animated classics film with Mickey in the title and everything, which we I believe we don't get. This is like very rare to have Mickey in one of these mainline Disney films. Yeah, absolutely not. At various points in time, there have been discussions, even quite recently there's been discussions about making a full-length Mickey Mouse feature film. But um, And I think similarly to his appearance in Fantasia, the thinking behind developing a Mickey Mouse feature at this point was Mickey's star is waning in comparison to people like Goofy and Pluto and Donald, so let's rehabilitate them, let's give them a big marquee role. And that isn't quite how it played out, and this still ended up being... If you look at the actual advertising for this movie, for Fun and Fancy Free, Mickey is secondary to Bongo in a lot of the posters and stuff for this. They were pushing Bongo the bear, who we'll talk about in more detail later, um, who didn't quite become the breakout star, I think they hoped. He did not, he did not. Well... On that note, should we commence our main discussion of both of these films? Should we go for it? Absolutely. Let's kick it in. Wait, what? That's not a phrase. (laughs) Let's kick it off. First up, then, we're going to talk about Make Mine Music, which, as you said, it's a selection of 10 shorts. It's a musical fantasy in 10 parts in a sort of Fantasia style, but with a different sort of musical backing. It's less in in the way of classical music. But first up, let's talk about the Disney Plus thing, because it's weird that this film is not on Disney Plus. And also weirdly, the version that I watched on DVD is different to the version that you watched on DVD, because I have the UK DVD and you got an import. So was this something that was even hard to track down on DVD at the time? And what's going on with this film that's shifting shape and is hard to find and track down? Yeah, this was the last of kind of the classic features to be released on DVD in the UK. It didn't get a DVD release in the UK until 2013. And I started collecting all of these DVDs in around 2010, 2011. So I had to import the DVD because I was loath to be without it. This great big gap (laughs) in my collection, it was driving me crazy. So I got it in from the States. However, upon watching it this time round and comparing notes with you, I realised that I was missing a segment of this. I was missing a whole portion of Make My Music. And I think that ties in with the broader issues surrounding the actual release of this thing. So I found out that they didn't actually release it in the US on home video until 2000 on DVD. And it's never been reissued since. And... The first segment that we're going to talk about of Make My Music, The Martins and the Coys, was cut from that version, was cut from the Region 1 DVD because 
it revolves entirely around gun violence and there's lots of gunshots and murders and deaths and you know we'll get into that in a bit more detail in a second so that was cut from the dvd and they also slightly edited another one of the sequences which features a surprising amount of female nudity that took that out of the um the american disc as well so i wonder if the fact that it isn't on disney plus is like a residual effect of these changes and the fact that at one time it was considered to be unsuitable. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the films that we've spoken about so far, they have warnings on Disney+, Plus. they have a disclaimer at the beginning talking about outdated cultural depictions and all that kind of stuff, but it's quite different for this to just not be there at all. But like you said, maybe it's maybe it's the gun violence stuff. Maybe they wouldn't want to present it in an edited form and they'd rather it just not be there at all. Well, because that's it, right? Like, this would be really easy to edit. You would just do what they did for the DVD and took out any segments that offended. I mean, I was wondering whether it might be a issue around music rights because not all of the songs here were written for the film. There were some songs that were written earlier, so if any of those are still in copyright, that might have had an effect. I know that when Disney Plus first launched, Tarzan wasn't on because they were still working out the rights with the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate for that. I believe that's why. So I thought it might be something like that. But again, you could just cut those songs and put it on. Even if it was like 45 minutes, some of it would be on there. So I don't know. I I could not get to the bottom of this. And I hate that. (laughs) So as we were saying, we're going to mention these segments as we go through. And if any particularly pique your interest then uh, you can check them out online. They're mostly on YouTube, or you can order the DVD, the UK DVD with the whole film on it. Before we get to the Martins and the Coys, I want to talk about the opening sequence to this, um, which I really loved. The title comes up in this really bold font saying, Make Mine Music in Technicolor, and it feels like a sort of razzling, dazzling, very vibrant way in. And kind of like Fantasia began with the orchestra warming up, like you're being invited into this performance, Make Mine Music begins with the entrance into the cinema. It's heading into the auditorium, it's taking your seat, it's kind of waiting for the screen to, to kick into life. And I love that, especially as we record right now. We can't go to the cinema. Cinemas are closed. I'm really, really missing it. And yeah, this made me just want to be in the cinema so badly. It's a great sequence, isn't it? I'm really glad you wanted to talk about that. It's this these kind of vibrant art deco visuals And I'm glad that you brought up the Fantasia comparison as well, because that jumped out to me too. This film has often been talked about as a pop Fantasia. It's it's doing for popular genres of music, which at the time included things like jazz and like Sinatra-esque balladeering. Crooner. Crooning, yeah. bit, Bit of the old crooning. Things like that, and applying the Fantasia treatment to them. And I think by contextualizing it in the cinema, as opposed to in the concert hall, it's pushing towards that interpretation like this is the pop fantasia this is the popular culture fantasia it's fantasia for the masses which i wonder if that's almost a a deliberate analog that's being drawn uh maybe as a response to the backlash to fantasia the idea that it was too high-minded the idea that it was um almost kind of desecrating these classical pieces well this is Walt saying okay we'll do that but from a more populist perspective I mean, we'll get into this as we talk about each segment. For me, it was kind of Fantasia without the ambition. I think with Fantasia, because it was classical music and because they wanted to do justice to these pieces of music, they really went for it. You could feel them really pushing and stretching themselves. And I don't think you get the same thing here. But let's begin with the first segment, which is described as a rustic ballad. And this is The Martins and the Coys is sort of frontier story in America about two groups of reckless mountain boys 
who shoot at each other, they're living on opposite hills, they all shoot each other and die and rise up to heaven, and the cycle continues of violence and fighting, and there's a, a sexy lady with a gun, and then a man with a gun, and he decides not to kill the lady because she's too hot to die. Sam, this was such a weird, weird segment. I couldn't believe that this was the opening of a Disney movie. Yeah, well, for me, it wasn't the opening of a Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it didn't exist. But um, yeah, uh, I, I went out and watched it on YouTube. I had never seen this before for that reason. It's a bit of a shocker, isn't it? Like, people People die. Hundreds of people are killed on screen in this yeah. movie, in this short. They, yeah, they die and they float up to heaven and then they're all living in a cloud and then that's not even the end of the violence. It's these two feuding hillbilly clans. It's actually based on a almost legendary story, something that is meant to have actually happened but passed into American folklore of these two families called the Hatfields and the McCoys who had this long-running generational feud. And the, the song that plays over this is quite jarring as well. One of the lyrics says that at the art of killing they became quite deft, which is like such a weird thing to celebrate characters for in a Disney movie. We're only two films removed from Bam people man was the baddie so the martins and the coys completely wipe each other out apart from two people one member of each family one's a woman one's a man they fall in love they get married and then the back half of this film is like a square dance there's like four minutes yep. of square dancing it's like loads of violence and then a big old hoedown but then of course the moral of the story is if you can call it that that the war didn't end because married couples what are they like they're always scrapping the fight continues inside the martin coy homestead and it all kicks off again yeah, this was a weird segment, and I, I didn't love it, and there was something about it that sort of recurred through the rest of Make Mine Music, which is that the animation felt quite simplistic and quite cheap to me. I think you can tell, I think this is the first Disney film where you can really tell that they're a bit strapped for cash, and they're sort of doing what they can, and just trying to make something loose and cheap and... It is fun, but there's no real like substance to it, and I think this is one of those segments where that really comes across. Yeah, it's sub silly symphonies animation quality. It's not as good as the shorts that Disney were typically putting out at this point. It's um, a typical cartoony style of animation which is something that you're going to see in quite a few of these shorts. Basically there's three categories in Make My Music. There's kind of straightforward comedic cartoons, the kind of which you would reasonably expect Walt Disney to release just as a short in theatres as part of the Silly Symphony series. Then there's some more like modernist vibrant, minimalist jazz cartoons and then there's these loose impressionistic tone poems which don't really feature any kind of narrative or any kind of prominent visualizations at all and that's what we've got next next we've got the blue bayou which is explicitly labeled as a tone poem in its opening titles all of these things have really interesting opening titles all of the shorts in this have their own little like movie poster introductions which i think are all really cool i think that's a highlight and it definitely is a, a tone poem i mean it's, it's there are some gorgeous images here so this is as the name blue bayou would tip you off it's, it's a sort of rural everglady environment it's at night there's a lot of gorgeous blue moonlight there's a heron. It's just sort of natural imagery. This was sort of like a crossover for me between Bambi and Fantasia, where it's like, here's just a lovely, lush, natural environment. You're going to hang around here for a few minutes and not very much is going to happen. But this heron slash stalk, whatever it is, is going to swoop around for a bit. And that's kind of beautiful. 
Yeah, there's some very long, protracted, multiplane shots through the Everglades. They are slower than the ones you find in Bambi, and therefore less impressive, less dense with, with moving scenery. But mind you, Ben, this is our first Fantasia offcut, and this was literally taken from Fantasia. This was completed, and this was going to be in the movie Fantasia, and they took it off basically for time. And it was originally set to Claire de Lune by Debussy. Wow, that makes sense. So they actually recorded Claire de Lune with Stokowski, and it's on YouTube in its original form. That's incredible. I'll have to check that out. And it's better. It's it's a lot better, actually. <laughs> it's more synchronised with the music, as you would expect. The movements of the herons are very reflective of what's happening in the song. And, and this is going to be a theme recurring throughout Make My Music. The song in this is crap. Yeah, I was just going to say, what is the song here? So a lot of these were just songs that they wrote for the film in collaboration with like some pop composers. And this is performed by the Ken Darby singers, and it's just a sappy, insipid little ballad like many of the songs in this are. They are not great. They are not like peak Disney bangers, are they? No, definitely not. And I think it just all adds up to this vibe of this being sub-Fantasia. Um, it's interesting you say that this was going to be in Fantasia because I do think the animation here is beautiful. It just didn't really do anything for me. It, it wasn't the most exciting. Well, its closest analogue in Fantasia is the closing sequence, the Ave Maria, which similarly is lots of basically static images which are very pretty and fade into one another nicely, but which don't really convey a narrative and which go on for a bit too long. And I thought the Ave Maria segment was great in context as a coda to the Night on Bald Mountain section. But in this, it's just, it's too long. It's too early in the film. For me, this was my first segment that I saw. And I was like, I wrote down, why the hell is this first? Why would you put something so dull at the start? And of course they didn't. It was a more exciting shot in the original version. But even so, it's a weird whiplash to go from the Martins and the Coys into Blue Bayou. And then an even weirder whiplash to then go into the next segment, which is our first sort of jazzy one. As you mentioned, the three different kinds. There's a, this is labelled as a jazz interval called all the cats join in and this is sam the whitest jazz thing i have ever seen this is a song about jazz about young cool people being fans of jazz music and everyone in this segment is incredibly white <laughs> yep and you know of course this is a depiction of a particular milieu isn't it this is a depiction of a specific subculture of white teenagers Hepcats or Bobby Soxers or whatever you would, however you would refer to that subculture if you were a, a grumpy old person in the 1940s. <laughs> and yeah, they are clearly white suburban teens driving on down to the the malt store. Is that what they call them? The malt the, where they, they go and drink soda pop. The malt shop. Yeah, it's a malt shop. And I was like, is that booze? Is that like what? What is the malt shop? And then they get a massive dessert. And I was like, I'd quite like to go to the malt shop and have this massive Sunday, please. Yeah, they're always doing malt shop. I think West Side Story has a malt shop. Greece right. has a malt shop. It's a big like kind of forties, fifties cultural hotspot for the white teens if this was remade in the modern age everybody would be going down to caspers or creams those really uh in your face pink and black dessert parlors you get <laughs> in city centers so the music here is from the uh, benny goodman band benny goodman was a white guy but he had an integrated band it was one of the first integrated jazz bands and he's credited as one of the artists who brought jazz into the world of like high culture he played some seminal gigs i think it was carnegie hall 
which brought different audiences to see this kind of music. He didn't have to go into Harlem um, to see jazz. It was placed in a context where white middle-class audiences could more easily access it. So, yeah, the version of jazz that we're seeing here is quite Caucasian, but it's also quite vibrant, right, in terms of the animation. This is really exciting in a way that the first two aren't. Yeah, in terms of the animation, what I liked about this is that it seems to be trying to take on some of the some of the freeform expressionistic sort of feelings of jazz music and express that in animation so you get these kind of very basic sort of pastel backgrounds to scenes and then you get some really expressive characters moving really fast in front of them it has a real energy to it and it's kind of complicated in the character compositions and very basic in the backing compositions in a way that feels really sort of distinct especially for Disney I would never have pegged this as as Disney animation yeah the designs are very distinct aren't they I mean there's in a way I thought it was reminiscent of Archie comics like it's more of a comic book look and Archie was kind of hitting his popularity hitting his stride at this point in the comics started in the early 1940s a lot of the designs were reminiscent of uh, Jim Flora who's a very influential designer of jazz album covers for labels like RCA who I think he was starting off around this point so I don't know whether Disney had or the artist had seen any of Flora's work but um, I think there's a very close similarity and maybe that's just something in the water in terms of the visual aesthetic that people ascribe to jazz music at that time. And you also get a bit of um, fourth wall animation stuff, right? You actually see the pencil draw these characters, drawing attention to the way that the art is made. And in a really weird moment, the pencil like erases this woman's big bum. <laughs> a woman is drawn with a bum bigger than she'd like, and she sulks, and then they erase the bum and give her a smaller one. It was like a weird... That was another strange moment. I feel like this film is full of rogue stuff. <laughs> well, speaking of rogue, there's a, a, a protracted sequence where the teen girl goes in the shower, and you see large portions of her bare flesh you don't see any of the um the, the really naughty bits but you see a lot of bits she hears jazz she strips off and she helps straight in the shower i don't know what that means <laughs> it's uh yeah this is potentially another controversial uh, segment that maybe denied it a place on disney plus quite possibly so next up we have got another sort of impressionisty torn poor me quite dull endeavor <laughs> Yeah, the phrase you're looking for is another boring one. It's called A Ballad in Blue, and the name of it is Without You. Um, Actually, do you know what? I had some nice things to say about this. It is a boring one. It's very short, and it's all about rain on a window, and the rain effects I thought were really cool. Like, considering a lot of this film, to me, looked and felt a bit cheap, this was one of the moments that you look at and go, oh, okay, well, that's doing some, like, visually interesting and appealing stuff. The opening and closing shots of this really like stark geometric illustration of a window as well which i thought was quite cool but then most of the actual imagery here is just like blurry pink trees and clouds and you can really feel them reaching towards something but it doesn't fit in this compilation it just doesn't quite achieve what i think they're setting out to do i think it's more interesting in terms of what else it evokes there was a moment um where there's these icy blue trees with these sort of crystalline structures and that for me immediately drew me to things like frozen i think there's a lot in these previous segments 
that I'm drawing connections to other Disney films that I'm excited to talk about and that's what is kind of jumping out at me rather than anything happening on the screen so I saw those icy crystal effects and I'm like oh that feels like a line that you can connect to Frozen with the jazz segment we're going to get to the Aristocats that's a film that I grew up on actually I watched that quite a lot and that's obviously very jazz influenced especially in the music and the tone poem blue bayou we're going to get to the bayou in princess and the frog way down the line so these are the things that i'm picking up but i'm less interested in what's happening actually in these segments and i have to say that was true for for without you yeah they are ideas aren't they they're sketches they're not fully realized i think is is the thread that links them all they could all be better you can envision what these would look like if they were good and you know if they were in fantasia they would be better they would be more interesting they would have more than one idea the fantasia films move through you know that they all have their own set like caches of iconography they all have their own sentence that the place is within but within that they move from scene to scene and character to character and incident to incident quite quickly. Whereas this is, you're going to sit here and look out this window for like five minutes and you're going to enjoy it. (laughs) And I'm like, will I enjoy it? Will I though? I mean, some of these are, like you said, sketches. The next one is a slightly more fleshed out idea, but that doesn't make it more successful for me. This is one of the bigger moments in this film. It's called A Musical Recitation, and this is Casey at the Bat, which I was excited for the return of my good pal Casey Jr., the train from Dumbo. Sadly, that was not the Casey that this film is talking about. This is about a big, buff ginger guy who plays baseball. It's the one with Casey... And he's at the bat to hit the ball and he messes it up and that's it. Great. What a story, Sam. What a tale. If it was a train playing baseball, that'd be something to watch. That'd be something from the spectacular imagination of Walt Disney, you know? Um, This is based on a poem by Ernest Thayer and it's a very popular poem. It's like an iconic poem that's associated with the sport of baseball. So you can see why they would have wanted to do it. It's being read by a well-liked comedian at the time, Jerry Colonna, who was Bob Hope's sidekick. But it doesn't come off, does it? It's another one of those that feels like a poor man's Disney cartoon. It feels like a Goofy cartoon, actually. It's very reminiscent of the Goofy cartoon How to Play Baseball, which came out four years earlier. And there's some you know, really similar gags there. The character animation's fine, but at this point in time, the Warner Brothers studio and MGM are at the height of their powers. Things like Droopy and Tom and Jerry and the Looney Tunes are being pumped out very quickly by these genius character animators, these genius slapstick comedy animators at these other studios. And this is not a patch on that. Disney trying to get involved in this like slapstick comedy world, which they've done very well in the past with people like Goofy, in this instance, it just feels like a pure limitation of, of what else is going on in the industry at this point. Completely. And I hated Casey. He was just a big, weird lunk of a man. Uh, the whole point is that he is like the saving grace player who's going to come and win this game for them. And he's going to come and like smash it and everyone's going to be excited. And he just, I don't know, he's too cocky and he like messes it up and um, all the women love him. And then the whole segment has this like zany, chaotic vibe where like when the game's going badly, there's unrest, people are shouting, kill him! And it builds up to this kind of crazy crescendo where Casey has like missed his first two strikes. He's two strikes down. It's building up. Is he gonna is he gonna whack the ball on his third strike? And the whole construct kind of breaks. You leave the baseball game to look at some weird birds on trees, and then it turns out that he's struck out and 
and he can't hit the ball and it oh sam i i hated this one so much this was like the worst thing that we've watched in this entire podcast so far okay i mean i didn't think it was that bad you're getting you're getting quite worked up mine oh. is a couple of shorts time i i right. have a worst thing that we've watched on this podcast so far and it wasn't this look he's a victim of his own hubris it's a classic tale it's aristotelian tragedy he's the gaston of baseball i think that's what this is supposed to be <laughs> He's no Gaston. Well, no one's like Gaston. One thing that I do want to say about this, this is one of several shorts in this compilation which take place in this, like, fantastical, idealised version of turn-of-the-century small-town America, or, like, small, like Main Street USA, basically. That's the setting. And that is something that is a real preoccupation of Walt that you would see drawn out more and more in his in his later projects. Like, Lady and the Tramp is set in that world. A lot of his early live-action films was set in that world. Things like Pollyanna and So Dear to My Heart. And the centrepiece of the Disneyland theme park is Main Street USA, which is Walt's attempt to recreate these kinds of towns where he spent his childhood in the flesh and let people go there and revisit that period. You know, Walt was born in 1901. Walt is like a real child of the 20th century and he really is preoccupied with this aesthetic. This is an early attempt at that, I believe, an early attempt to capture that, like, idealised, nostalgic America, and it doesn't quite happen. (laughs) It's not somewhere I want to be. It's a horrible place, full of horrible people. Yes. Not your best, Walt, but don't worry, we won't hold it against you. And Make My Music, it transfers from baseball to the ballet. So the next one is Ballad Ballet, The Dance. Uh, and this one's called Two Silhouettes, which is another, it's another really slight, short, this is two dancers rotoscoped in silhouettes against these kind of admittedly pretty looking pink and purple backgrounds. Sam, I don't know if this would have like blown people's minds at the time. Now I found it pretty boring. Yeah, I mean, there's potential there and there's definitely some interviews where Walt's really talking this up as like a groundbreaking marriage of two art forms of dance and animation. But I don't feel like the animation really augments the dance at all. It's like the dancing is in the foreground, the animation's in the background. The two things rarely interact. The animation isn't very dynamic. There's a couple of interesting moments. There's a bit where a cherub is like balancing on the female dancer's leg like a seesaw. So there you've got the two coming together. You've got the animation and the live action dance working simpatico for this like little gag. But um. Yeah, it's another boring one. It's another incredibly boring song sung by Dinah Shaw, who was a very popular singer at the time, who we're going to meet again, actually, in Fun and Fancy Free. And these two ballerinas were famous as well. Uh, David, I can't pronounce either of the names. They're both uh, Russian. David Lishin (laughs) and Tanya Ryabushinskaya. That sounded good, didn't it? Yeah, you gave it a go. And and they were, you know, acclaimed, well-known ballerinas. Which brings us to something else about this film that I haven't really mentioned before, and there was traces of this in the Latin American films as well. Stars are really front and centre here. Famous people are top build on this movie, right at the start in those opening titles in the Art Deco cinema. It's naming all of the people who are going to get involved on this soundtrack in a way that... I mean, the, the, the names of the um, Latin American actresses are in the opening credits of The Three Caballeros, but... Make My Music feels like a bit of a sea change when it comes to how involved stars are becoming in these films. If you think back to the days of Adriana Casalotti on Snow White, it's, it's a huge shift. Speaking of names attached, let's move on to the next segment because it's basically the centrepiece of the film 
This is A Fairy Tale with Music, and it's Peter and the Wolf. And the big name here is Sterling Holloway, which is a name that I think I recognised from this podcast. Sam, is this one of your boys? Yeah, St- okay, Sterling Holloway is one of my boys. Sterling Holloway is, I believe, the guy who starred in more Disney films than anybody else, definitely from the classic period he is. We have already seen him as the stalk in Dumbo. He was Flower in Bambi, and he narrated the weird penguin sequence from The Three Caballeros. And he would go on to play many classic roles, which I'm not going to spoil. We'll encounter them as we encounter them. And here he is, the narrator of Peter and the Wolf, based on the Sergei Prokofiev composition. And I am not a huge fan of Holloway's work on this film. I'm not a big fan of this film... This short film, full stop. Peter and the Wolf. It's the centerpiece of of the movie. It's easily the most lavish production in Make My Music, but it just it really feels like a thin sketch of what a film of this could be. That they just sort of gave up on it and kept it as a short. So this is the story of a little boy, a little blonde boy, who wants to go out and shoot a wolf his grandpapa says you shouldn't do that because you're literally a child and it's a wolf and you're gonna die the little kid decides no i'm gonna go out and shoot this wolf he dreams of glory of capturing this wolf and killing it because he's an absolute little creep uh heads out into the woods and of course is entirely out of his depth uh and him and a bunch of animal sidekicks are menaced by this terrifying wolf with big snarling mouth and yellow and red eyes and it's scary and it's dark what did you think of this one, Sam? I hated this with every fibre of my being. <laughs> so, so, do you know anything about the Prokofiev composition? Did you recognise it? No, not really. Was I supposed to? I, I, I thought this was a fairly well-known song. So this was considered for Fantasia. Walt met Prokofiev at one point before the war and they discussed it. I don't think it, they ever got very far with it. I don't think they actually started work on turning it into an animation until this film. But the, the Prokofiev piece, as Stolen Holloway explains in his opening narration, the whole idea of it is that it will be performed alongside a live narrator for children. And each character corresponds to a particular instrument. So Peter is represented by the strings, the bird is represented by the flute, and the duck is represented by the oboe and the cat by the clarinet, etc. And the idea was that the combination of the narration and the music would help children to relate to this fairy tale, to envisage the characters as they are portrayed by the musical instruments. And it's an interesting experiment in in merging, you know, a very specific narrative with a piece of classical music. That is completely thrown out the window in this film because we have animated visuals, right? There is an animation on screen showing us exactly what happens and therefore the narrator is completely redundant. And it's so, so irritating. As much as I love Sterling Holloway, he's acting like it's a combination between a sports commentator and your annoying mate sitting next to you in the cinema who won't shut up (laughs) about what's happening on screen. Like, everything that happens... He commentates over, and even when like the animals are fighting the wolf, he's like, oh, okay, the duck's going to get another punch in. All right, here comes the birds. It's terrible. It's obviously been embellished from the original Russian narration, not least in the fact that every character is given a name to the point where three random hunters come on screen and the narrator says, all right, here come the hunters. It's Mika, Yasuo, and Vladimir. Vladimir is the one in the middle. It's like, I don't care. These characters are on screen for seconds. Why does it matter? Do you know who I did care about? Sasha the bird, who was really cool and really cute 
and has a little hat on. That was good. Do you know who I hated? Peter. Just the worst. This cocky little kid who is responsible for the death of Sonia the duck. Sonia was cool. Sonia was lovely. Of course, it turns out to be a fake out at the end with no consequences whatsoever, Sam. It was infuriating. This horrible little boy who didn't deserve to be okay at the end. He put all his friends in danger. He doesn't get his comeuppance. The whole thing was like a weird anticlimax. He should have been eaten, is what you're saying. He should have been eaten. He should have been chomped down, and all of his animal friends should have danced in delight. (laughs) I can see that. Yeah, this was just... This felt like something that had been... Today, you might say, had been, like, focus group to death. It feels like it's been workshopped over and over again. Like, you've got Walt watching this back a hundred times, saying, like, no, this needs to be more appealing. The kids need names so that they can relate to the characters. We need more narration, more jokes. It's like the the whole name thing feels like the Seven Dwarfs principle taken too far. Like we need to give all these characters personalities. And it's like sometimes the animation can speak for itself, especially when it's paired with music, whereby the whole point is that the music is telling the story. I'm with you. I'm with you. Before we work ourselves into an absolute frenzy, should we uh, continue through the last few segments of, of Make Mine Music? So the next one is The Goodman Quartet with After You've Gone. This is another one that's just like, do you know what? It's some fun colours, fun shapes, some bendy musical instruments. <laughs> and uh, th- do you know what, though? This one had some quite nice Dali-esque colour schemes. And I know you've mentioned in the past that, that Dali and Disney collabed, as they said at the time. You could feel a little bit of that influence there for me. Yeah, it, it's very much in tune with the jazz music as well. I mean, this is the, the second of the two jazz songs here from the Benny Goodman Quartet. And it does quite a good job of visualising that. And it's like some interesting minimalisty, modernisty designs. But it feels like something that's being done better elsewhere still, right? It feels like these are the kinds of ideas that we're playing with in the back half of Three Caballeros, and this just isn't as impressive. Yeah, I'm completely with you on that. The next segment is called A Love Story, and this is the tale of Johnny Fedora and Alice Bluebonnet, two hats that fall in love with each other. This had a real Pixar kind of premise to me. You know, Pixar's whole thing is like, what if X had feelings? This was, what if hats had feelings? And these two hats fall in love with each other. And obviously they get sold to different people and they're trying to find each other. It's quite a cute idea. It reminded me of, I think it's Disney and not Pixar. There's that recent-ish Disney short about the two umbrellas. That's Pixar. The red umbrella and the blue. Oh, it's a Pixar one. Yeah, the blue umbrella by Pixar. It reminded me a lot of that. Yes, it is very similar to that. It's a fun enough premise, isn't it? I thought it was, a, again, a bit naff, a bit saccharine. I love the Andrews sisters um, who do the vocals on this. Huge fan. I mean, not a huge fan. <laughs> Don't ask me to name <laughs> my top ten or anything. Absolute stan over here. <laughs> well, I, I like the vibe. So, okay, so there was two things I liked about this. One is the use of perspective, because you see in everything from the hat's point of view, which means that we don't often see like people's faces we're looking a lot at like the tops of people's heads and people's feet so it's an interesting use of the animated camera in a way that's unique to animation and its potential to anthropomorphize and it's something that's used throughout lady and the tramp to really great effect the other thing that i like about this is just how much johnny fedora gets the shit kicked out of him Yeah, he has a terrible time. He's like ragged around by a dog. He's hit by a sign. He's blown away by a streetcar. He gets into like a bar fight. He's trampled on. He's washed away. Yeah, he he goes through the ringer here. 
Yeah, he's shot at. He gets clubbed over the head by a policeman at one point. Um, and then at the end, he gets picked up when he's absolutely soaking wet and tatty on the street. And somebody cuts two holes out of him. And I'm thinking, no, don't do that to Johnny. For- don't mutilate Johnny Fedora. And then it turns out they were cutting holes in him so that he would fit on a horse's head. They put him on a horse who's pulling the carriage. And then next to him is another horse who's got Alice Blue Bonnet. And she's been <gasps> mutilated as well. What a convenient ending. I would say not worth it. Not at all. I would not go through that for a woman. I don't want to sound like Dr. Dre or something, but I would not. (laughs) Sam, let me assure you, you don't sound like Dr. Dre (laughs) in any sense. No, absolutely not worth it. There's no danger of that. Okay, right. We're nearly at the end. We're limping to the end of Make My Music. So let's, uh, let's wrap it all up with the opera pathetique. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, yeah. That is The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met. So this is a guy called Nelson Eddy who does all of the voices here. And it's a bunch of opera for no reason. Everything is opera and it's a lot to deal with all the time. Do you know what I mean? Well, I didn't know Nelson Eddy was joining us for this podcast. <laughs> He's beamed in. I'm channeling. I'm channeling his energy. Uh, he's good, though, right? He does a lot of different voices. He does a lot of different registers. Uh, yeah, you know, he's got he's got a few tricks up his sleeve, opera wise. I mean, all the tricks are opera, but. <laughs> Oh, this is. I thought this was really good. Did you? Okay, <laughs> well, you this. lead on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was class. So it's about a whale who. Well, it's about a mysterious voice which is heard at sea. And we discover that that is the voice of Willie, the operatic whale, who can sing in three different registers. He can sing tenor, baritone and bass because he's got three uvulas. He's got three um, dangly throat boys and they all allow him to sing in different registers, I guess. That's whale science. That's how that works. Uh, He's a much friendlier whale than Monstro, and all he wants is to sing at the Met, which is the Metropolitan Opera. Is that a thing? I think so, yes. Right, doesn't matter. Meanwhile, an impresario called Professor Tetty Tatty has heard about the opera singing heard at sea, and he assumes, reasonably, that the whale has swallowed one, if not three, opera singers. Or, as he says, a opera singer? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, comedy Italian accent on on Tetty Tatty. So he goes out to sea with some sailors and a harpoon, to kill the whale and free the trapped opera singers inside. When confronted with Teddy Tatty, Willie thinks, all right, this is my shot. This is my chance. I'm going to blow him away with my musical talent. And then Willie has these beautiful fantasies of um, performing at the opera. And then he, he, he does indeed get his shot, but not the kind of shot he was expecting. Shot with a harpoon and killed. <laughs> it's about a twat who kills a whale. That is what I, I was devastated by the end of this. I was like, this film was a bit of a slog anyway, but it ends with a 15 minute opera heavy segment about a man who kills a whale. That's it. That's the end. What the hell? I knew this was going to get you. I was thinking yeah. this is going to break Ben Travis. And it did. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. You see his his fantasies of all these different opera performances that he's going to give at the Met. You see the headlines of the uh, assorted press. I, I like that it references specifically the New York Times here, Variety. The New York Times headline is, Crowds storm famous opera house. 
Variety goes for Wonder Whale. Wow. I'm intrigued to see if we have any reviews from New York Times or Variety for this film when we get to the review segment. But yeah, it ends and they say, oh, now Willie will never sing at the Met. It's like, yeah, no shit, because he just got killed. It's awful. (laughs) But, and I quote, somewhere in whatever heaven is reserved for creatures of the deep, Willie is still singing, which is nice and we'll get to see him in heaven singing to the angels, but that feels a bit shady. In whatever heaven is reserved for creatures of the yeah. deep. And it's like, do you know what? Don't feel too bad. Because he's he's in heaven and he's still singing. It's like, no, no, I do feel bad. And it says as well, don't be too harsh on Titty Tatty. No, let's be incredibly harsh on Titty Tatty. Because he shot the whale. It's one of the saddest endings to any Disney film. It's not notorious in the way that like Bambi and Pinocchio are, but it doesn't get much more tragic than this. Which of course reflects the opera setup. As Bugs Bunny once said, what did you expect in an opera? A happy ending? Like I get, yeah, it's a whole opera thing. It also reflects, as we've mentioned before, our dynamic on this podcast of you being a secret goth and loving the <laughs> one where, where the whale dies at the end. And I was incredibly upset at the whale's death. He's so charming, though. He's a great character. Yeah, he's one of the great lost Disney characters. The scenes where he's fantasizing, performing at the opera, is so funny. Like, he's this huge, enormous whale towering over the crowd. He's dressed up as, like, Pagliacci or Mephistopheles or all these various characters from the history of opera. And you've got Nelson Eddy singing all of these legendary arias in different voices, which is so cool. And the whole sequence is a reference to Citizen Kane. Did you catch that? No, I didn't. I thought it was kind of a King Kong thing. Oh, okay, maybe. The sort of, yeah, kind of capturing nature and then obviously just killing it. <laughs> um, the way that montage plays out, though, with them, you know, fading between the applause and the spinning headlines and yes. Willie's performances, it really brought to mind the theatre montage in Citizen Kane. Well, I'm glad you got something out of it, but for me, Sam, the ending of Make Mine Music left me in need of something much more fun and fancy-free. So, come on then. Should we get on to the next film in our discussion today? Let's do it, let's do it. So after being, let's be honest, pretty let down by Make My Music, I did not really enjoy that film particularly, I was wondering whether Fun and Fancy Free was not going to live up to its name, that it was going to be a bit of a slog. And I have to say, I actually enjoyed this one a lot more. And I think what's really nice is I like these package films when they give you a bit of framing around it of what this film is supposed to be so with saludos amigos i really enjoyed that it was like hey we're all getting on a plane and we're going to latin america we're going to south america we're going to visit these different cultures and communities and we're going to do animation based on it and that is the structure of the film and with fun and fancy free it basically gives you its own context which is that it's post-war everyone is miserable and people wanted something light people wanted something fun and fancy free there's a, a newspaper that pops up saying catastrophe seen as crisis looms human race going crazy everyone is worried everyone is stressed the world is in quite a dark despairing place after the war and this film was intentioned to bring a bit of happiness and a bit of escapism for people and i think it largely succeeds at doing that yeah i just wanted to bring up a couple more headlines from that newspaper because we've also got scientists commission releases doom report i mean what does that mean (laughs) it could be anything right and then there's a little note that says full text of doom report so you know if you've got that (laughs) newspaper don't worry you are going to get it's not going to be a summary you're going to get the doom report in full so you can really comb through it sun will soon turn to ice 
Oh my god. I mean, that's... That's some, like, not even B-movie, that's, like, Z-movie stuff. <laughs> this film is set in a world where the sun is soon gonna turn to ice, so any of the characters that were made might not be long for this world. <gasps> Including Jiminy Cricket, who is part of this framing narrative. This is the return of the absolute boy, of, the, like, the one good thing from Pinocchio. He is part of the framing narrative for this. He's boating along on a little leaf. I liked the reveal that you see him sort of paddling along, chilling out on this leaf, and it turns out he's actually in a plant pot but he's there's a puddle of water in this plant pot and and that's where he is sam is this the same actor voicing jiminy cricket who voiced him in pinocchio yeah it's cliff edwards and played him in pinocchio played jim crow in dumbo so you know for his sins here he comes back as jiminy cricket he returns and god i needed this i watched these two movies i double build them and at the start of this movie i mean i knew it was coming but you hear jiminy before you see him singing his little song, his happy little song, and then he roars into view from behind some plants on his little leaf boat, and it was like, oh yes, please, what a reprieve from the misery and mediocrity of Make My Music. Yeah, it's like when Han and Chewie turn up in The Force Awakens. We're home. <laughs> you knew you were back in safe hands at that point. And, um, and yeah, he basically guides the audience in, he puts on a record... I just want to stop you there. He puts on a record, but he chooses it from a stack of records, and they are all classical pieces. So I think that's significant. He rifles through, he rejects Bach, Schubert, and Beethoven, and he picks up this little children's record, Bongo, by Dinah Shaw. And to me, that's symbolic of, again, Walt trying to move away from Fantasia, locating the film in a pop world rather than the high-minded world of classical art. We're not going to be messing about with, with Schubert and Bach anymore. This is fun and fancy free. It's something light for the kids. Yeah, and there's some like nice lyrics to this opening song that's like, it's fun, 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 and fancy free. And I was like, do you know what? Yeah, like you, I really needed that. I needed that after Make Mine Music. But yeah, so Jiminy puts on the record of Bongo, uh, a musical story sung by Dinah Shaw. And Sam, this was quite a familiar story. This is one that I enjoyed it, but I could kind of see why it didn't quite make it to a feature, because it was very, very Dumbo meets Bambi. It's about a bear in the circus who is being exploited by the ringmaster, who has to go and do the same routine every night, who is the headline act, who is bringing in all the punters. But off the stage, he's demeaned, he's locked away, he doesn't really have any freedom, and he pines for life in the great outdoors. He escapes the train, heads into the woods, and lives a sort of Bambi-esque life of just like let's see what it's like living in the forest uh, and then there's a whole thing about this like bear love triangle yeah it was interesting to see them going back to that form of storytelling to be putting a different spin on some familiar tales yeah what did you make of bongo i agree with what you're saying it is very reminiscent of dumbo in fact by some reports this was originally meant to be a spin-off of dumbo and it was going to have some of the side characters like Casey Jr. and um, the gossiping oh, elephants were going to be in this. Casey Jr. could have been back, my boy. But I don't find Bongo as likeable as Dumbo. I think he's got some qualities that I didn't quite get along with. He's a little bit arrogant. He's a little bit cocky. He's the star of the circus and he can do anything. He can be a strong man. He can walk on the tightrope. He's always on his little unicycle, which admittedly is impressive and quite fun. Can, can you ride a unicycle? God, no. No, especially not <laughs> as well as he can. He's He can ride it in the forest. He can ride it in any environment. He rides it up a bear. 
all-terrain. I I'm, I thought you might be able to, because you're very good at hula hooping, and I thought that a lot of the same qualities might come into play. <laughs> a lot of the same talents. Balance. Balance. And... Balance is really hard. I've, have you been on one of those electric unicycles? They are so, so hard. You know, you see those people like whizzing around on a one wheel thing they are incredibly hard to to balance on um i've tried one a couple of times i don't own one i'm not that weird but yeah i'm unicycling is not my forte so big respect to bongo on that front yeah this is very familiar until it suddenly isn't because the way that this love triangle actually plays out is i would say a bit unique and came to me as a bit of a surprise this is one that i can barely remember i genuinely i know i have watched this movie before like about 10 years ago that around the same time i watched make my music but i did not remember any of this at all and it took me aback the way that this plays out i think you're referring to the fact that there is an entire song about how you can show somebody love by slapping them and there is a whole sequence about slapping people that you love and i was like yeah this is this is not aged well so what happens is bongo He's having a bit of a rough time making it in the forest. Maybe if he took off his clothes and put his unicycle down, he would be more accepted and be able to integrate more easily into bear society. But um, he falls for a female bear called Lulu Bell. And then, oh, they have a, a weird little montage of love, which, like a fantasy kind of hearts and cupids, which I thought was very reminiscent of the silhouettes, actually, in um, Make My Music. And then the baddie enters the picture, right? The villain of the piece, Lumpjaw. I mean, that's a good name. <laughs> it's a great name. Do you think he enters the pantheon of Disney villains? I mean, no. I don't think any of these characters really enter the pantheon of of great Disney characters. Um, Like you said, Bongo himself is like uh, an engaging enough lead, but I can see where he hasn't become a thing. Uh, Yet Lumpjaw, he's he's just a massive bear who's really angry. That's his vibe. He's sticking with it. So yeah, he picks up Bongo, slaps him around a bit because Lumpjaw is also after Lulu Bell. And after barely surviving the assault from Lumpjaw, Bongo gets up and he walks over to Lulu Bell expecting a sweet embrace. But instead, she gives him a big old slap across the chops and knocks him flat on his ass. Yeah, and I was as confused as he was at that point. I had no idea what was going on. It's like they pull off that whole moment and then they have to put in a song that's like, we're going to explain why she slapped him now and sort of stop. I wonder if they were like, we need to explain to people what this whole slapping thing's all about. (laughs) Because Bongo is upset by this. Bongo thinks he's being rejected. And then the next thing that happens is... Lulu Bell accidentally slaps Lumpjaw and he takes this as an invitation to get with her. And yeah, then we get the song explaining to us and to Bongo what's actually happening. I've got some of the lyrics to that song. Go on, give us a rendition. I mean, I can't sing it. I can't remember the tune (laughs) because it's poor, but I've got the words. Uh, Every deer and every dove has a way of making love, but a bear likes to say it with a slap. You can ask any bear, there's nothing to compare with a love tap, strong or weak. So if you're ready for romance and you get the chance, grab your girl and give her your cheek for her to slap, implicitly. (laughs) Give her a slap, give her a cuff, 
go around the floor and strut your stuff. He slapped her once and he missed her jaw and he wound up smacking his mother-in-law. Oh my god. Maybe this whole just slap the person you love thing should not take off, Sam. Yeah, you can see how that can lead to confusion. Even within the bare society, you've got people slapping the mother-in-laws. It's a terrible idea. And we get this like dance sequence of all the bears slapping each other. It's so out there. Yeah, the, I mean, I for me, the bongo sequence started strong and kind of tailed off when it got into the love triangle bear slapping finale. But do you know what? The thing I quite liked about it, it just felt like an, a real Disney mega mix to me. It's like, like I said, a bit of Dumbo, a bit of Bambi. It felt like a bit of a precursor to the Jungle Book even, partly because there were bears everywhere and you think of the design of Baloo in, in Jungle Book, but also in that it's... It's set in a natural environment. There's a kind of loose plot going on, but it's really just about having, like, japes and adventures in this natural landscape. So it it felt like a lot of different Disney tropes all in one, even if it doesn't feel particularly fleshed out in the way that a main feature would be. I mean, do you get the sense that this could have been fleshed out to a main feature? Or do you think that they were wise to leave this in this shorter form? I think they were wise to leave it in the shorter form. I think it would have felt too repetitive based on what they'd done in the first five features, really. I mean, they even have a sequence that's very Snow White because at night in the forest, everything starts to look spooky. It kind of references some of the universal monsters, which I thought was really fun, kind of playing on werewolves and and mummies because there's a burgle cocooned up in white ribbons. He's attacked by bats. And it feels like that moment in Snow White when she's running through the forest and the forest is transforming. I think if they'd have done this as a feature, it would have felt too derivative. But as it stands, it's kind of an interesting curio of this film that never quite made it. I think it's more interesting in this form than it would have been as a full film in its own right. I'll tell you what I did quite like as well, and just to wrap up the story, is this big old drag-out fight, this no-holds-barred scrap that closes this thing out. Um, When he realises that Lulu Bell was just trying to express love, he takes on Lumpjaw, and this battle is like a decent... It's like 20% of the whole short it reminded me of like at the end of something like the avengers where it's like okay now we're just having this fight this is all this is and they'll really go for it yeah he's getting the unicycle involved you get some unicycle foo like grinding them up with the wheel and chucking them around and then Lumpjaw falls off a cliff and presumably perishes we don't see anything more of Lumpjaw. oh and another thing that i thought was quite cool is that Bongo is saved by his hat. So the whole way through, he's on his unicycle, he's wearing a daft little circus coat and like a sort of fez hat strapped round his head. And then they both fall off the cliff at the end and the hat catches on a branch and that's what saves him. Okay, so the thing that made him different, the thing that is representative of his inability to integrate into the wild is the thing that saves him. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but that felt like a good message. That feels like a very Disney sort of message, even if it wasn't made as strongly as it might be in in another film. I mean, you're talking about... um that the last 20% of this is basically a big action sequence. That was the main difference for me as well with Fun and Fancy Free versus Make Mine Music. This one actually felt a bit more ambitious. It's not the most detailed animation Disney's ever done, but it felt more rich and characterful and a lot less cheap than some of the stuff in Make Mine Music did. Yeah, it feels more fully... Not necessarily fully realised, but it feels more carefully conceived. Like, they knew going in that what this was going to be, and it was plotted out and paced to fit that. Yeah, it feels just like an interesting little Disney short story that, even in 
in its own right as a sort of 25 minute half an hour thing I think it's worth watching. Compared to some of the stuff in Make My Music, I would happily watch this instead. But it's it's more like an alt-universe what-could-have-been, isn't it? Mm. So once the bongo record is over, the one that Jiminy Cricket put on, we're back in the framing narrative. And this is when things start to get a bit weird, isn't it, Sam? Because Jiminy finds a party invitation to Miss Luana Patton. And it says, join the party, come along, it's a cinch you can't go wrong and everything's fun and fancy free uh and so jiminy goes to the party it's at a house across the street and suddenly we get a mash of live action and an animation you get this really amazing shot where it's a live action party that is framed quite literally because the window frame and the outside wall of the house it's an animated plane uh, so jiminy is peeking through the window at this party and sam this is when the ventriloquist dummies come in what the hell was that all about? It's not like any party I've ever been to. <laughs> so... It's a party for a girl and a man who I don't think is her dad and two ventriloquist dummies. What the... What? Where did this come from? <laughs> okay, I think we need to unpack this a little bit more because so Jiminy finds an invitation addressed to Luana Patton. So implicitly, that's whose bedroom this is. That's whose house this is, Luana Patton. Right, yeah. So he finds that, he acknowledges that you shouldn't read other people's mail, but he does anyway, and he he goes to the party, he's going to turn up uninvited. It's okay, he's a cricket, no one will notice. He gets there, and the whole party is one guy, two ventriloquist dummies, and a girl. That girl is Luana Patton. And who was she? Was she like a celeb or something of the day, or is she just a character? She is an actress, so that's her real name. She was a child actress who at this point, I'm pretty sure had only been in Song of the South. So Song of the South, the uh, notoriously racist and self-censored Disney movie released in between Make My Music and Fun and Fancy Free. And I guess Disney was trying to make Luana Patton into a bit of a child star. She would appear again in his next live action film, So Dear to My Heart. So he puts her into this in this sort of like Hollywood setting, because that's where this whole overarching frame and narrative is set in Hollywood. And it's like, okay, it's one celebrity getting an invitation to a party from another. But one of these celebrities is a little girl, and the other is a middle-aged man, a famous, legendary, really, ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his two dummies. And this is where there's confusion, right? Because not only has Mr. Bergen done that real classic trick of drawing a face on his hand and making a talk like this with his thumb. He's curled his thumb around his finger and making it look like a little face, which is a classic. I wonder if this is the film that popularized that. But there are these two puppets, right? There's Mortimer, who is this like horrifying sort of yokel puppet. And then you have Charlie, who looks like a real classic serial killer ventriloquist dummy like the one that comes to life and murders people while they're asleep and these dummies can talk independently even though it's mr what's his name who's doing the voice sometimes he sits next to them and is clearly doing the voice while he's sat next to the puppet but sometimes the puppets are just there in the shot on their own and they are talking of their own accord sam what is the internal logic of this film can these dummies talk is it all mr thingy and if so why isn't he puppeteering them the whole time what's going on okay so i think in the film it's asking you to suspend your disbelief as ventriloquists do when they're on stage and believe that these are independent characters 
and that's why I think we're introduced to Bergen doing the little hands puppet thing, which is very clearly within the film's diegesis meant to be a trick. The hands puppet isn't alive, that's just Bergen's <laughs> hand. But these two puppets, Mortimer and Charlie, they are alive. They have their own personalities and desires and wants. And that, I guess, makes it slightly less creepy that this one little girl was invited to this party because that makes the party guests... Luana Patton, Charlie McCarthy, and Mortimer Snurd, and Edgar Bergen's the host. I think that's the setup. These are just this is Bergen, and these are his three friends. <laughs> and as part of this party, they have a cake, and he decides to tell a version of Jack and the Beanstalk that instead of Jack is Mickey and the Beanstalk. So this is a pretty well-known story, right? Everybody knows the Jack and the Beanstalk story, but I wasn't sure if I particularly knew this version. So let's go in on Mickey and the Beanstalk. And it begins as the tale of Happy Valley, which, as you'd guess, is a happy valley, until a giant comes along and swipes a magic singing harp from the castle. And without the magic harp song enchanting Happy Valley, it is no longer happy. It becomes an orange post-apocalyptic wasteland, looked a bit like Blade Runner 2049. And then that kicks off the story of Mickey and Goofy and Donald Duck all living together and Mickey coming into possession of some magic beans after selling their cow. Sam, does the classic tale of Jack and the Beanstalk begin with a magic harp? That felt like it was bolted on from another idea. Well, there is a magic harp. The last thing that Jack typically steals from the giant in the fairy tale is a magic harp. Uh, The whole Happy Valley thing... I think that was part of the original idea, which was to expand this into a feature. And actually, the original film was going to be called Legend of the Happy Valley. So I think that world was going to be a lot more fleshed out initially. And what we're seeing really here is the vestiges of that. Because this would work without the magic harp and the Happy Valley thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And that's interesting that you say that, because I imagined if this was its own feature film, they would have put Mickey Mouse in the name, that it would have been part of the selling point, is that, hey, it's the Mickey Mouse film. But even if that had been the case, yeah, it wouldn't have been the Mickey show. No, well, it's not just Mickey. We've got Donald and Goofy as well. And again, at this point, having spent five to ten minutes with these horrible dummies, it's really great to meet our friends. When we zoom in on that cottage and for the first time on this podcast, we see together the boys, the big three, Mickey, Donald, Goofy, sitting around the table... It's so great. It's comforting. We're with our pals. I love these guys. I love the dynamic. They've been in loads of shorts together, which are among my favourites. And here we go. Let's watch the antics commence. But they're pretty miserable when we get there. (laughs) Yeah, they are starving to death. They are doing the bleakest thing I've ever seen, which is slicing a kidney bean into three portions so that they can each have a tiny sliver of a single bean. Donald Duck is about to murder everybody and eat them. Uh, He's going full shining, full cannibal, and he's going to kill a cow. He's swinging an axe around. He is flipping out, man. It it quite quickly moves past that part of the story, which I was thankful for. I mean, Donald's always been a man on the edge. It's always been clear that it doesn't take much to tip Donald over. And I guess months of starvation was just the straw that broke the camel's back here. He is out for blood. 
I think you will be unsurprised to hear that I, again, sadly, was not the hugest fan of, of Donald Duck. Um, but I really enjoyed Goofy. Donald Duck is your vibe. Goofy is my vibe. He's a common presence, I think. He's got a lot of heart, that guy. What did you think of Mickey in this, though? Because this is the first time we've seen like a real... We've had the Sorcerer's Apprentice, but now we've got a narrative with dialogue, with characterization. What did you think of Mickey? I mean, Mickey is so iconic and it is really great to see him anchoring this story. Like, he's just... The design of him is so endearing. But I have to say, in terms of as a character, he is a bit bland. He has to play the sort of slightly bland hero, whereas Donald gets the crazy angry murderer thing to do and Goofy gets to just be the like chill, funny, slightly slapsticky one. So I think Mickey is maybe slightly saddled with the boring role here. Yeah, I mean, I was quite glad to see that as this plays out, as the giant gets involved, Mickey is very much placed in the hero role. There's a bit where he has to save Donald and Goofy, who have been locked in a box, for example. And that is quite... It's a little bit refreshing because in all of these Mickey, Donald, Goofy cartoons, which I love, things like The Clock Cleaners and The Lonesome Ghosts, which you can all check out on Disney+, Plus, Mickey is sidelined. It's billed as a Mickey Mouse cartoon because he's still the name, but the animators know that they can have a lot more fun with these other two characters, so he gets less screen time than them in his own cartoon. So it was good to see him being given some time to shine, even though it is quite clear that he doesn't have that strong a character. Still, like you said, it is a joy to see these three all together. They're described as stout-hearted lads, which is uh, a really great phrase. Yeah, Mickey sells the cow, he gets magic beans, they're all fuming at him because, of course, he's been tricked. They're not magic beans, but actually... Yes, they are. They flourish under the moonlight. Uh, and I, I like that shot of their house. As the beanstalk grows, the ha- entire house is carried up into the sky on the beanstalk. And it's a pretty classic telling of the story. Although the main difference for me was, in the traditional Jack and the Beanstalk story, is the giant a shapeshifter? That felt like a Disney invention to me. Yeah, the giant in this, from out of absolutely nowhere, has omnipotent powers. Um, his name is <laughs> Willie. He's our second big Willie of the podcast. Him and Willie the Will making a, a bit of a team. I, I would like to see them interact together. That'd be fun. He bounces on screen. He's a bit of a, I guess you might say, a simpleton. He's introduced as if he's going to be this very ominous character coming in and you see his shadow, but then it turns out he's this bounden, kind of fun guy, if a bit dim, and he's singing a great song where he goes, um, I'm a most amazing guy, a most amazing guy, am I? I'm on this dude's side. Yeah, he's he's got a lot of confidence, you can say that. But it's all justified because he can shapeshift, he can fly, he can change his size, he can turn invisible. He is basically Thanos at this point, right? He's got all the Infinity Stones, he can do whatever he wants, he can shift reality, he can move about in space and time. And I guess another thing to point out, actually, which we haven't mentioned yet, is that all the way through this, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd are joining in. They are chirping up and trying to take the piss out of the characters and out of Edgar Bergen, the narrator, a little bit, and it's pretty um difficult to stomach for me yeah every like five or ten minutes you cut back to the horrible ventriloquist dummies and you're like why are we here why are we back with the horrible mortimer puppet going looks like my pig smedley (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i've wrote down a few lines when bergen says that the harp who is depicted as like an attractive golden woman is the only one who knows the giant's weakness. Charlie McCarthy says, she can be my weakness. 
So the dummy yeah. is horny for the harp. <laughs> That's established. Great. It is so random that none of the framing narrative around the puppets and the party made any sense to me, and I, I didn't love that. But yeah, we thankfully return to the Mickey and the Beanstalk story, and it plays out in a pretty familiar way. Goofy and Donald are locked in a box. Mickey manages to free them from the box. They escape the giant. The giant dies. He falls out of the sky and dies. What a happy ending. And then everything goes a bit weird because we go back to the framing narrative. We go back to the creepy party. And there is like an unnecessary but kind of enjoyably weird coda wherein the giant from the story rips the roof off the house. And he is in the sort of real-ish world. It gets very strange. Yeah, Mortimer, the puppet, who, like Willy, is very dim and therefore seems to have formed an affinity, he's very upset that Willy's dead. And Bergen's like, oh, no, it's fine. It's nothing. He's just a figment of your imagination. And then, boom, there's Willy, rips the roof off. Pretty cool, like, effect. That works. That holds up. It really holds up. Yeah, it looks great. And, I mean, it's not the first time they've blended animation and live action footage before but this felt quite different to the way that we've seen it expressed in these disney films before it felt very um fluid and yeah just like wildly imaginative i had no idea this was coming and then he's looking for mickey he can't find him so he marches off down the streets of la like godzilla tearing buildings apart looking for mickey and then he picks up the um the brown derby hat it's like a restaurant in the shape of a hat and he plops it on his head which is so (laughs) cute i like that that was cool yeah good way to end it it's fun to see Disney playing with Hollywood. Like the Hollywood sign is right there. You've got uh, Grumman's Chinese Theatre, which is like the iconic Hollywood Walk of Fame cinema. Uh, the Trocadero as well is is very specifically pinpointed on this map of LA. And that's the end of the story. Like Jiminy Cricket legs it when the giant comes into town. And then you just see the giant stalking off through the streets of LA. And that's it. End of Fun and Fancy Free. And I have to say, it did live up to that name for me. It was like a wild and kind of weird film, but it was upbeat. There was no real particular heaviness there. And it was just a sort of fun confection at a time when the world probably needed that. And that brings us to the point of the show we like to call Discarded, where we look at what Disney changed and left out of its adaptations. Now, Last week, there wasn't really anything to bring up in this section, but this week there is. So in Make Mine Music, Sam, we know that Peter and the Wolf was an adaptation of a, of a piece of classical music. What are the differences in the in the regular story and the Disney version? Well, the main difference is your friend the duck gets killed. Oh, they don't bring him back to life at the end. Nope, just straight up eaten by the wolf, gone, dead. So I think in, in that sense, Peter's like, help to account like he suffered some consequences for his ridiculous actions and i hope he feels ashamed for it he doesn't get his comeuppance in the disney version and he should have done but yeah that's pretty much it as far as make my music goes bongo on the other hand interesting source material there was based on a short story by a guy called sinclair lewis have you heard of sinclair lewis doesn't ring a bell no he was the first american to win the nobel prize for literature Wow. For Bongo? For Bongo. <laughs> Not for Bongo. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, so because then they would have had to change a lot. It's like if this was based on a Nobel Prize winning piece of work, then I think quite a few things might have been cut out. Um, but no, there were a few changes. Mostly the, the ending. Um, the love interest bear, who is called Silver Ear, 
in the uh, story rather than Lulu Bell actually goes with Lumpjaw. She just prefers Lumpjaw. She likes a big Chad bear. So they go off together and then the next Bongo finds them. They've had a family and Bongo's pretty upset by that. She's gone and had kids with this Lumpjaw guy. So Bongo, um, he goes and joins a different circus. Oh, he goes back to captivity willingly. Yeah. That's a bleak ending. I can see why they skipped that whole bit. But it's very kind of complex, right? You can see where he got the Nobel Prize. This idea of, I tried. I tried to exist outside of the world in which I've been raised, and I could not. I tried to do something for myself, and I could not. So I'm going to prostrate myself before the altar of the circus industry and ask to be accepted back in. That's definitely saying something. I don't quite know what. It's saying something, but what it's not saying is fun or fancy-free. Yeah, he does meet a girl bear, though, in the um, circus who he gets with, so I guess he got what he wanted, in a sense. Is there as much unicycling in the story? I don't know if it's specified. Just every every third <laughs> sentence it says, and Bongo is still riding his unicycle. <laughs> and that's what the Nobel Prize was for. <laughs> so evocative of yeah. unicycling. <laughs> What what about Mickey and the Beanstalk? Because we talked about there's obviously some twists on that story there. Um, is there any weird stuff from the original telling that isn't in the Mickey version? It's fairly standard. I think in its most famous form, that's a, an English story, as opposed to most of the fairy tales, which are mainland European, like Germany, most often that area, compiled by people like the Grimm's. And they are, as we've seen in Snow White and as we will see going forward, can be quite... Um, graphically different from the Disney adaptations. But Jack and the Beanstalk, from what I can tell, fairly straightforward. There's a few more beats, which you would imagine would have been in, if it was a feature film, like the go up and down a few times and take back a goose that lays some golden eggs, for example, before they get to the harp. But yeah, pretty standard. Although one thing that was discarded from the original feature version, or two things actually, Minnie was going to be in it as a queen. Oh, wow. And Gideon and Honest John were going to be in it from Pinocchio. No. Oh, thank God they weren't. And nothing about Gideon or Honest John can be considered fun or fancy free. I'm so glad they didn't make it in. Those absolute creeps from Pinocchio. Yeah, they were going to sell them the beans. They were the really? bean merchants. You can see that, right? I can see that, to be fair. I can see that. But then that wouldn't have made sense because the whole point is that the beans are magic. Nobody believes the beans are magic, but they actually are. And I don't believe, despite his name, that Honest John would honestly sell magic beans. I think he'd be in it for the grift. Well, maybe he didn't think they were magic, but they turned out to be. And he's looking up at that beanstalk thinking, damn, <laughs> it could have been me. We've got this stupid cow now and nothing else to do with it. Okay then, so let's talk about the reception of these films. So what did critics say at the time about Make My Music? Right, okay, I have a couple of reviews for Make My Music, which take, as we've seen with some of Disney's films like Fantasia and Bambi, some quite divergent uh, points of view here. So the LA Times said that it was as diverting an excursion on the screen as has ever been contrived. What? They loved it? They were like, look at this bounteous array of stories. I mean, diverting almost sounds like damn with faint praise, but as has <laughs> ever been contrived, nothing has ever been more diverting than this. Well, hold on to your hats, because Variety says that um, there is so much in Make My Music. The animation, colour and music, the swing versus synth, which is an interesting contraction for symphony, but there you go, and the imagination, execution and delineation, that this Disney feature may command the widest attention yet. 
this is potentially the best film Disney has ever made, and they close by calling it Socor Box Office Entertainment. Is that because Variety is in the film? At any point does the Variety review say, Wonder Whale, wow? <laughs> Not in so many words, but as I was, they were fans of the whale. Meanwhile, theatre arts, who were a, a somewhat more high-minded institution, they were less favourable. They Their critic comes forward with an interesting metaphor to describe his relationship with the Disney films. Suppose you go to visit a friend. You know that he has a warm heart, that his sense of humour is infectious, his professional skill is beyond compare. But when you enter his house, you find to your dismay that his walls are festooned with second-rate art, vapid landscapes and valentine motifs. His furniture is carelessly assembled with little regard for harmony or any concern except to fill space. You would not, therefore, cease to love this man, but you would have to admit with regret that his taste is deplorable. Wow, they really dug the knife in there, didn't they? Really harsh. We love Disney, but he totally sucks. (laughs) I think this almost signals a broader critical shift that was taking place that you saw elements of in the reception to Bambi, which is that Mm. Disney was once championed not just as excellent popular entertainment, but also as radical transgressive art. He is doing something with the film medium that nobody else is doing. You know, these films are, are experimental. These films are really ambitious. And I feel like around this time is when... The, this intellectual contingent of Disney fans really starts to turn on him and starts to register that a lot of these films are just kind of tacky and sentimental, which is one of the main complaints that's been levied at Disney forever throughout the studio's existence. So that was Make My Music. What about the critical reception to Fun and Fancy Free? What did, what did the reviewers have to say about that one? Again, uh, somewhat mixed. The New York Times writes that within the familiar framework of the Walt Disney story cartoon, that magical gentleman and his associates have knocked out a gay and colourful show. Nothing brave and inspired, but just plain happy. And while the emphasis is more on the first part than on the second part of that compound, i.e. plain, it's okay. And the New Yorker says that Walt Disney, who seems to have been aiming for mediocrity in his recent productions, has not even hit his mark. Oof. Yikes. So... Yeah, I think with this second package film, or this second of kind of this run of package films, the tend to be really that the opinion that this is all just trash is really setting in, that this is sub-mediocre. I'm astonished by the responses to uh, Make My Music, and maybe that is part of this general fact that people were deprived of Disney films and deprived of just, like, good humour in the post-war years. But, um, yeah, by the time they got to Fun and Fancy Free, from what I can tell, they're kind of done with it. Which is the opposite of how we felt. Yeah, really, because for me, Make Mine Music was a dud for the most part. And Fun and Fancy Free, like, I do sort of agree with that review that said it was just plain happy. And yeah, it is kind of plain, but it was it was happy. And it was it felt like it set out to just bring something quite light and entertaining and not too heavy. And it did exactly that. So I think that's kind of a maybe an underseen curio. Something that I would urge people, like, do you know what? If you're into Disney stuff and you've never seen these films, like... Fun and Fancy Free is one that's worth checking out because there's some really interesting stuff in there. I maybe wouldn't advise that with Make Mine Music. Yeah. So anyone who's been and spent £5 on the DVD from Amazon (laughs) to watch this for this podcast, I apologise. Yeah, we're very sorry. But hey, you know, you tried something. Maybe you enjoyed it more than we did. Who knows? So were they box office hits? How did they perform financially? Because that is very important for the studio at this point in time. Well, they weren't 
absolute smashers. They made around two million each, but they were cheap, so it's working. And that's a similar thing that we saw with Saludos Amigos, that they weren't like knocking Snow White or Pinocchio off the top of the charts in terms of how much money they raked in, but unlike films like Pinocchio and Bambi, they were so cheap, so they were still really profitable, which is why Disney's repeating this formula again and again, and why we're going to get to see two more of these. So what would you give these things on a scale of one to five stars, Ben? So for the first time on this podcast, I'm going to give a two star rating, I have to say, to make my music. I just, I think it just felt very derivative of Fantasia. It's like Fantasia, but not special. There aren't that many segments either that I think I'd return to. There's some pretty stuff in there, and it's interesting seeing them gravitating towards different styles of music. But that was the first film, really, in this whole process so far that has been a little bit of a slog to get through. So, yeah, it would have to be a two-star for Make Mine Music. I think I texted you a couple of disparaging thoughts as I was watching it. First one saying, Fantlazier, more like. And that was good. I chuckled at that. Did you chuckle at that? Did you also chuckle at Make Mine Literally Anything Else? (laughs) Yeah, pretty solid. Um, Two stars. Yeah, I was... I was flirting with one and it was going to be on the basis of do we have a zero star because I wouldn't give this zero stars but this is not the worst Disney film. So on that basis if we don't have zero I'm going to give it two as well. Yeah we don't have a zero. One is the lowest uh, and it's not quite one star. It's like not completely completely terrible. It's just not particularly recommendable. This isn't as bad as it gets. I mean I will really love Willy. If you're going to seek something out, seek out Willy the Whale. Hang on, yeah, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) That's staying in. It's staying in. All right, fair enough. Seek out Willy the Whale on YouTube if you're going to seek out any of these. And the jazz ones are pleasant enough, the the Benny Goodman shorts. But yeah, it just felt like you would expect a film like this. And this is almost how Walt was talking it up at the start. You would expect that something like this would be able to set the animators free a little bit. Let them indulge some of the more creative impulses you know try something a bit different but in most of these they still feel trapped by convention they still feel like they're stuck in a rut of trying to recreate like the most successful silly symphonies and and goofy cartoons and things like that so it's it's a missed opportunity more than anything else but um it's the worst film we've watched so far easily it's not crap though is it it's not utter crap the salvageable stuff i think there is only one crap Disney film and that's a bit of a teaser for the future there is only one film that's going to be at the absolute bottom of this that's going to get one star from me have some fun guessing what that might be (laughs) my early guess is that it's going to be at some point in the early to mid noughties it's possible it's possible (laughs) Uh, but anyway so that's that's my take on make my music for me fun and fancy free is a three maybe even like a three and a half because i think there is actually quite interesting stuff in there i would urge people to check that out if they're into disney films and probably haven't seen that i think like it's interesting looking at bongo as a a sort of slightly lost character who maybe could have in another world become a bit of a headline star and never quite broke out and just fun to see the gang donald mickey goofy all hanging out in mickey and the beanstalk so it definitely lost points for the horrifying ventriloquist dummies but yeah i'm gonna go a solid three for fun and fancy free 
Yeah, it's a three, isn't it? I mean, there's no real kind of standout visuals from this, with the possible exception of the beanstalk growing out of the ground. I think that that was pretty cool, pretty nifty animation work there. But, um, you know, the stories are pleasant enough. There's some good slapstick, especially I did like the fight at the end of Bongo. And the dummies are horrible, but they are nothing if not interesting. They are intriguing. It is wild that this happened. <laughs> there is a Disney movie that has this thing in the middle. And it's even sort of a precursor to things like Mystery Science Theatre, right? There's a whole genre almost now of people making jokes over the top of movies and stuff like that. So in that sense, I guess, ahead of its time. But it's uh, even though they are bad, that's why it's worth watching. It's something you don't really see elsewhere in the Disney canon. Choices were made, Sam. Choices were made. But now it is time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. So Sam, what is the lasting legacy of Make Mine Music and Fun and Fancy Free? Do these films have any sort of impact on the wider Disney pop culture? Yeah, I think that phrase, a whole universe for each character, that is really being <laughs> stretched. In this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's not a whole universe for like male silhouette. Or, um, you know, even even Sasha the bird, or duck, I can't remember which is which, doesn't get a whole lot of play outside of this. But there's actually more than you would think. So, let's see what I've got here. The f- let's do Make My Music first. There was a sequel to Casey at the Bat. What? Yeah, they made another Casey short called Casey Bats Again, where Casey manages a team... Okay, so he's moved on from player to manager, and the team is composed of his nine daughters, the Caseyettes. Nine daughters? Wow, he really... He, Casey was at the bat for a, for a little while, wasn't he? <laughs> Virile, absolutely. Which, you know, you would expect nothing less from the baseball legend and all these women seem to be throwing themselves at them. So this team, the Caseyettes, enter into like the women's leagues, and it's the big game, and you know it's going fairly well for them, but... Casey is watching one of his daughters at the bat, ready to take this big swing, decisive moment in the game, and Casey just can't stand it, okay? Casey doesn't have confidence in his daughters to be able to win this, so what he does is he um, comes on in drag, dressed in a woman's baseball uniform and a wig, grabs his daughter, chucks her out the way, takes the bat, and decides that he's going to take this swing. And, of course, he balls it up. So this is really a story about toxic masculinity yeah this sounds very much like the casey we know and absolutely do not love yeah i think it gives like a an interesting arc to the casey character though it really contextualizes his previous appearance when you watch this like okay that's what this guy is he is an avatar of male fragility and that is kind of funny and kind of satirical. I, I I almost appreciate it. Well, that sounds like an interesting sequel and one that I'm not going to watch because I hated everything about Casey. <laughs> yeah, Willie the Whale pops up every so often on things like House of Mouse, like these crossover Disney productions. I don't think we've talked about House of Mouse before. It's worth mentioning. No. House of Mouse was a cartoon from the 2000s that I used to watch when I was a kid where Mickey and the the Mickey gang all run a club. And all of the denizens of the club are like characters from other Disney movies and they play Mickey cartoons on the big screen and it's it's kinda of like a cabaret situation. And so you get a lot of cameos from um lesser known characters like Willie, but that's about as far as it goes. In terms of the parks, I was really surprised by how much stuff there is. 
so I've mentioned the storybook canal ride a few times. Um, it's one of the few parks appearances of Chernobog from Night on Bald Mountain. Yes. But on the Paris version of the storybook canal ride, which is just a little boat that you ride past various like miniature dioramas of scenes from Disney movies. And one of those in Paris is um, Peter and the Wolf. And you hear a bit of the Prokofiev tune. There is a hot dog restaurant on some versions of mainstream USA called Casey's Corner, themed around Casey at the Bat. At Disney's California Adventure in, of course, California, there used to be a boardwalk game. There's like a boardwalk with like some old school arcade games, including one called Casey at the Bat, where you're throwing baseball pitches. But that was replaced when the boardwalk was rebranded as Pixar Pier, and Casey at the Bat became Heimlich's Candy Corn Toss based on Heimlich the Caterpillar from A Bug's Life. That is an absolute upgrade right there. Mm. There's also the Blue Bayou Restaurant, which is a really iconic Disneyland restaurant in New Orleans Square in California. And I don't know, that might just be a coincidence, because they're already making this whole area of the park based around New Orleans, so it makes sense that they would have a, a restaurant with like Bayou theming. I don't know if that's a deliberate reference to um, the Blue Bayou section from Make My Music, but it's a coincidence. I think maybe almost too much to be a coincidence. Mm. And uh, finally, there was a discarded design for Walt Disney World in Florida, including like the original designs for that park. There was going to be a Willy the Whale Aquarium. Wow, so he would have been the sort of starting off point for a whole extra segment of the park. I don't think of aquariums when I think Disneyland. No, well, yeah, but because so, it was never made, but this one... I mean, there wouldn't be a whale in the aquarium, though, would there? So that's you're setting no, yourself up cruel. for disappointment. There's no way there would be a whale in the aquarium. So, yeah, that feels um, slightly misjudged. And so what about Fun and Fancy Free, then? Okay, barely anything in the parks for this. I mean, Bongo is not... We've kind of alluded to it already. He has been completely forgotten, right? Like, you sometimes see Peter and the Wolf, like the characters from that kicking around, and, and Willie the Whale. Bongo if you had not actually sat down and watched this film, you would have no idea he existed. But they did used to be people in costumes at least resembling Bongo in Disneyland. I managed to find a picture of, um, it was part of like, a, it looked like a Dumbo parade float, but like at the front kind of leading that float was a guy in a Bongo costume. So there you go. And there is a gift shop in the Magic Kingdom called Sir Mickey's, which has a medieval theme. And inside, if you look at the roof, it looks like Willy the Giant's pulling the roof off and and peeking in. That's cool. That's a really niche reference. Yeah, exactly. I think you would be the only person who would sit in that restaurant and be like, look, look, that's Willy the Giant. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's from the end of of Fun and Fancy Free with Edgar Bergen and Mortimer Snurd. Everyone's like, sir, please stop talking. This is a Wendy's. Please stop talking. This is Sir Mickey's. <laughs> Willie is a character that has been salvaged and appears quite a lot. He's featured more prominently in House of Mouse. He's also got a recurring role in the preschool show Mickey's Clubhouse, which is another kind of Mickey Mouse, Mickey, Donald, Goofy, Willie the Giant, the whole gang, teaching kids lessons. There was a level based on Mickey and the Beanstalk in the very difficult Sega Genesis game Mickey Mania. Nice. I wonder if that's as tough as the Fantasia game. Not nearly as tough. I have beaten Mickey Mania. It got ported to the PlayStation, so I beat that when I was a kid. It was hard, but not as hard as Fantasia. You've got to run away from Willie. Um, he's chasing after you, like Indiana Jones, run away from the ball there. That's quite cool. And last, but, well, arguably least, there was going to be a Disney Jack and the Beanstalk movie. So not a Mickey version, like a just a regular Jack and the Beanstalk thing. Yeah, pure Jack and the Beanstalk. It was aiming to be the follow-up to Moana, 
So it was going to be the next like CGI fairy tale musical movie from the Disney Animation Studio, and it was going to be called, in the vein of Tangled and Frozen, Gigantic. So that's very recent Disney history. I have to say, considering how recent that is, I have barely heard about that. Yeah, 2017. I remember it being announced, and there was some concept art of like Jack on the beanstalk, and it looked quite cool, and I think there was a logo, and I remember thinking oh man, this adjective thing is getting quite tedious. Like, Rapunzel becomes tangled, the Snow Queen becomes frozen. Are they going to go back and rename Moana wet? Like, if all of these things have to be adjectives? <laughs> I think it's probably for the best that they didn't do that. Yeah, probably for the best. So there we have it. There's a, a surprising amount there from two films that have been sort of lost to time. There are remnants still flying around in the Disneyverse. But for the moment, that is it for this week's class. Join us again for the next seminar when we'll be covering the final two features in the package era in another blockbuster double bill, and those of Melody Time and the Avengers of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Every rating or review is really appreciated, and if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll thank you by recording our very own Willie the Whale operatic performance. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. I think that's mainly going to be you doing the opera section of that, but... It will be, and it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Real undiscovered talent there. Diversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Diversity.